extra time over the next couple of Sundays to do what I described last week as introduction to our study of the book of Leviticus. Um, I have looked forward to our study with a sense of fear and trepidation along with love for its message. The both are true. It's a complex book when you think about it where it sets in, in uh, uh, the history of the faith, its purpose and role, and all those kind of things. It's a, it's a very uh, challenging book. It deals with things that most of us are not familiar with. The offerings and sacrifices, the, all of those things that the Lord uh, commanded Israel to perform. And so it's really somewhat complex. But unless we set a foundation, we're just what shall you say, floundering in Leviticus. If you've ever read a good theological tome, some of you have, I'm sure, you'll note that the authors almost always include a section called the introduction, and it's rather lengthy. And their purpose, of course, is to set, uh, uh, to describe and to uh, set it in its proper perspective and foundation. To understand the book, how many chapters are in that book? How many times, like in the book of Leviticus, does, does it say, and God said? Okay. Um, leave that for guys like me. I mean, that's what we have to do when we study, okay. Okay. Uh, <laughs> We have to determine all of those kind of things, but deliver it to you to kind of put it in its proper foundation and perspective so that we can then benefit more greatly from the dealing with the actual text of the book. It is, a, I can think of a word. I'll use an old-fashioned one. Wonderful. The book of Leviticus is wonderful. Yeah, I'll explain it later. <laughs> but it is, uh, uh, it has wonderful things there. Although if you describe them in modern terms, ooh, I don't know um, how they chop up the offerings and lay them out and uh, take the entrails out and so forth of the sacrifices and the offerings. Sometimes that appears a little strange. Nonetheless, I'm going to spend some more time this morning on introduction. And uh, after a word of prayer, be turning to Luke 24. Wow. He says, we're studying Leviticus and we're turning to Luke 24. There's a reason for that. Let's pray. Our dear Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning needing your help, needing your spirit, needing your inspiration 
deal with our heart this morning. Instruct it. Anoint our tongue and lips that we might say the truth and say those things that you have communicated to us in these wonderful things. Bless us together as we study. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. The passage in Luke 24 is commonly called On the Road to Emmaus. I want to read that briefly because it sets a foundation by our dear Lord himself as to what we're going to do in the book of Leviticus. And I'm calling our all of our lessons, a series of lessons, The Road to Emmaus, where we're going to allow the Lord to instruct us as to what those Old Testament texts meant in terms of the gospel and in terms of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 13 in chapter 24 of Luke Now behold, this is after the resurrection. Um, Now behold, two of them were traveling the same day to a village called Emmaus, which was seven miles from Jerusalem. A little bit of a walk, but as in in terms of old uh, uh, distances and stuff, not that far. It's within a reasonable walk to Jerusalem. Seven miles from Jerusalem. And they talked together of all these things which had happened, that is, the crucifixion, the, uh, the resurrection, and all of the turmoil in the city at that time. And they talked together of all these things which had happened, so it was, while they conversed and reasoned that Jesus himself drew near and went with them. He came alongside, which common to do when you're walking as they did in those days. But their eyes were restrained, supernaturally he means, so that they did not know him. And he said to them, what kind of conversation is this that you have with one another as you walk and are sad then, one of, uh, then the one whose name is Cleopas answered and said to him, it's kind of, you could almost sense the frustration. Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem and have you not known the things which happened there in these days? And he said to them, what things? <laughs> I love it. Um, those of us who are preachers, when we go through the text, we see things that will preach, okay? And that will preach. What things? I love it. So they said to him, the things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God, and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers, both of them, Uh, the Pharisees and the Roman rulers, delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. 
Indeed, besides all this, today is the third day since these things happened. Yes, and certain women of our company who arrived at the tomb early astonished us. When they did not find his body, they came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And certain of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had say, said, uh, women had said, but him they did not see. Then he said to them, he's talking about the two guys on the road to Emmaus. O oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe in all that the, who have spoken? Prophets. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? David said so. Elijah said so. A whole bunch of prophets said so. And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. That's what we're studying. We do not, the Old Testament, we, we do not discount the Old Testament. Some of us believe that the Mosaic Covenant, including the law and all that kind of stuff, has been annulled or made obsolete, uh, Hebrews chapter 8. But what does that mean? We've tried to explain that. We are not dissing the Old Testament. No, no. Rather, we establish it. As a matter of fact, think about it. This is uh, after his resurrection. Are there any scriptures? Are there any New Testament scriptures? No, not a one. Everything that he's talking about is about the Old Testament scriptures, including Leviticus. All of those things. We do not discount the Old Testament. Indeed, without the Old Testament, we would not have an understanding of Christ. We wouldn't fully understand why he came, what he was doing, and what he accomplished while he was here. We need to know the Old Testament, not as a, as some would have it, rule of life, but as the precursor and the symbols and the predictive elements that Jesus was to come. In other words... I like this. I remember John MacArthur saying this once. Where's the first place that Jesus is mentioned in Holy Scripture? I'll, I'll entertain that. Anybody want to take a stab? Pardon me? Genesis 3. Genesis 3. Close, but not what we're after. Any others? Genesis 1. Well, how so? Yeah, amen, amen. And, and John 1 says, there was the Word who created all things. Who in the world is the Word? Jesus Christ. 
Jesus Christ is mentioned as the creator in Genesis 1.1. And the entire Bible, both old and new, is intended to reveal Jesus Christ and what he's all about. It's a beautiful thing. I do want you to know that our Bible is rather unique in that it has two basic, if I might call them, books. You got the Old Testament and you got the New Testament. And how many years between them? About four centuries. 400 years or more between the two. Isn't that amazing? Our holy book has two books separated by 400 plus years. For 400 years, there was no uh, revelation. And then immediately after that, Jesus comes. And then just like the Bible said in what our reading was, he ended up having to, after all of the events of, of his life, death, resurrection, and so forth, he ended up teaching them from the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures, what it said about him. Genesis speaks to Jesus Christ teaches us about Jesus Christ. Exodus teaches us about Jesus Christ. Leviticus teaches us about Jesus Christ. Numbers teaches us about Jesus Christ and Deuteronomy. And all the prophets, major and minor, whatever you want to call them, they're talking about Jesus and as you see the progression, as you, uh, uh, those of you who are readers of the scriptures, you see the progression as you work through there that it gets clearer and clearer until we get to something like, and every once in a while the Lord throws something in. I, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, I shouldn't put it that way. Put something in, not throw something in. Like Psalm 22 how does that uh, Psalm 22 start? Anybody want to? Turn there. You got to turn there. I can't believe it. I point this one out to my atheist friends. I do. Now, mind you, when David writes this psalm, I believe it's a, a, a psalm of David, yes, or at least it's credited to him, and I believe it is. And he starts out and says, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me? And from the words of my groaning, 
He said those words from the cross. It's a quote. It's about Jesus Christ. It's about the agonies of the throne. It's about redemption. It's about imputation. It is about the death of Christ and that his righteousness is imputed to us. It's about Jesus Christ. And every single psalm is. How do you like that? Even Habakkuk. I, I'm always making reference to Habakkuk in my series of sermons called Habakkuk and Me. <laughs> I'm a lot like the prophet Habakkuk, a little resistant to the Lord's uh, working and the way he works, and I'd like to speed him up sometimes and how he's dealing with the world. Uh, all of them have to do with Jesus Christ. It is predictive. Everything. From Genesis 1, as we've already determined, all the way to the New Testament. All those things were written for our admonition. All those things were written for our instruction. So don't let anybody ever accuse me of saying that I belittle the Old Testament when I talk about the obsolescence of the first covenant, the Mosaic. It's obsolescent. It's obsolete. But it taught us about Christ. And having done so, it was rendered obsolete and passing away. Again, Hebrews chapter 8. You remember we studied through Hebrews and I quite made a point of these things while we were there. There is much to be said about the Old Testament, but we don't just automatically take the book of Leviticus and bring it into our day and observe it. I don't think a single one of you are observing the Levitical sacrifices and feasts. Wait a minute. Maybe I am. Do you keep the Sabbath? Ooh, am I going to get in trouble here? <laughs> the Sabbath of the Ten Commandments of the Mosaic Covenant was the seventh day. Sunday, that day which we Christians traditionally hold as a day of worship is the first. Why don't you keep the seventh? And it was right in the Ten Commandments. I tease. Shame on you. <laughs> the fact of it is that all of you sitting in here pretty much Keep the Sabbath, if you understand it figuratively and symbolically. The Sabbath rest is when you rest from your works by faith in Jesus Christ. The Sabbath was predictive. It was a figure. It was pointing to Jesus Christ. We rest in him. 
Hebrews once again made that very obvious. He who has entered into his rest, who has believed on him, has entered into that rest, the author of Hebrews says. So you all are keeping the true Sabbath. What it was designed to be. A picture of something in the future. And that was the redemption that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Everything from Genesis 1-1 to the end of Revelation is about the exaltation and the glory of Jesus Christ. None of it is, is worthless. None of it is meaningless. As a matter of fact, Jesus is pointing to all those scriptures. Did, did Jesus, I'm, now I'm getting really off base, but Jesus did not say, turn to Galatians. No, he didn't say that at all. There was no Galatians. All there was was the Old Testament. And he said, in, I'll say, I'll say it in an interpretive way, that's good enough. It teaches Christ. It teaches the resurrection. It teaches the cross, and it teaches the second coming of Christ. All of it in the Old Testament. So what then, and we're going to be headed back to Leviticus, definitely part of the Old Testament, and definitely part of the law. And so we're going to be going back but we need to build that bridge between the 400 plus years between the old and the new. We have to establish a connection. Well, the connection is obvious. It is the work, ministry, and person of Jesus Christ our Lord who connects us with the Old Testament and does what in the New Testament? I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna put you on the defensive he fulfills the law every last item he is the end the telos of the law Jesus Christ the Lord the law served its purpose it is righteous and holy and without fault but it's obsolete. Jesus has come. Jesus is the fulfillment of all of that. And we need to exalt him. If I go to my grave today, which I might, depending, <laughs> as old as I am, I could, but I want to go to my grave with the testimony that I stood in class, that I stood in the pulpit, and I exalted Christ in every moment I could. It's all about Jesus Christ. Psalm 22 is about Jesus Christ. Psalm 110 is about Jesus Christ. You want to name more? 33, goodness, 79. It's all about Jesus Christ. It is predictive of him. 
And we're going to uh, 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 probably next week, since there's not too much time <laughs> to, uh, to start the book of, of, of uh, Leviticus today, uh, we're going to go, be going back and trying to discern what those fellows did on the road to Emmaus. They heard our Lord. Wouldn't you like to have been at that lecture? Oh my goodness gracious. <laughs> and they were taken like unbelievable. What did they do? I, I always like to say they dropped their bowls. They were at supper, as I recall, and when he revealed himself and then disappeared. And they rushed back to Jerusalem. Of course. It's beautiful stuff. And he taught them all that the Old Testament teaches about himself. I love it. And so every time I go to the Old Testament, I am looking for Christ and finding him. It for me, long ago, I'm talking about early before I went to seminary, for me, this reality kind of blew my mind when I heard it preached. I didn't believe that at the time. I didn't understand the Old Testament. And uh, 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 all of those things in Leviticus just made no sense to me as a young Christian man. I said, what is that all about? But then some wise men told me about Christ and the fulfillment of those Old Testament scriptures. And so since that time, I was a changed person in, so, in terms of my preaching, my teaching, and so forth. Because I understood then that the, that the exaltation of Christ is the end of all teaching in our churches and preaching. The exaltation of Jesus Christ. May God help us to do that. Now, I want to briefly, I have some things I want to pass out. Can I get some help? Because this is going to be necessary next week when we come into it. Hang on a second, I'm trying Pass those out, please. Give me one. Thank you. I am not going to do what we might normally do when studying the book of Leviticus, but at least some basics and some foundation must be established. I'm handing out to you a diagram of the tabernacle complex that... Israel was instructed to build in the Exodus and in the wilderness. This is the tabernacle. And many of the, uh, uh, the things in the book of Leviticus is based on the events and the things that went on in this um, 
structure. The t- the thank you. The tabernacle. Later, the temple. Once they settled in in um, Israel, and this is a a complex uh, tabernacle complex diagram. If you look at it, I want to start at the right. Bronze altar. What happened at the bronze altar? Well, at the side of the altar, the priest killed animals. It's true. Sometimes bled them out, collected the blood. And then depending on the type of sacrifice, they would then take the animal, section it, lay it out in order on that bronze altar and burn it. Burnt offering. It will be one of the first offerings that we study in the book of Leviticus. You got to wonder, stroke my chin, how does that relate to Jesus Christ? Then there's the bronze laver. A laver, of course, is like a wash basin. It's fairly large, and it's where the priests washed themselves and their hands and the whole thing uh, before they entered into the holy place. It was a tent. It was fairly large, not massively so, but fairly large. And in the first area was called the holy place. Very sparsely furnished. It had the seven branched lampstand over on one side. The table of showbread over on the other, which the priest who served in the holy place had to replace once a week. And then there's the altar of incense. Can anybody, I know this is asking, what in the world does incense generally connote or represent? Prayers of the saints. Absolutely. And so that's the altar of incense expresses prayers of the saints. And then comes the curtain. Now this curtain was not like your shower curtain at home. This was a big thing. It was, had, I forget how many layers. Does anybody recall? I think it's like seven layers. It's thick. It's heavy. And it separates the holy place from the holy of holies. I'll finish on a point. Jesus hanging on the cross. Unto my hand, uh, unto thy hands I commit my spirit. And what happened at the temple? From which direction? Top to bottom. Saying what? It opened the way for you. It was showing that the way to the holy of holies 
is open. No longer behind a curtain. It's accessible. Through whom? Jesus Christ, our Lord. It's a beautiful picture of the ministry of Jesus Christ. And we need to know this as we enter into Leviticus, that it's not just the writing of some, uh, how do my atheist friends say it, a bunch of goat herders. (laughs) Don't you just love that? Uh, A bunch of goat herders. If they knew and understood the excellent writing of the Apostle Paul, they should be ashamed of themselves. Uh, but, But anyway, they call them goat herders and all this kind of stuff. And it just was to them a pagan worship. But it's not. They are pictures of Jesus Christ and his ministry. But boy, when that curtain was torn, what happened to the temple? It was rendered obsolete. But that's another thing to show at some later point. As a matter of fact, later it was destroyed. Hadn't been seen since. There's been replicas, but that. I'm going to finish with a couple of uh, kind of strong statements. We are talking about the Old Testament and the New separated by 400 plus years. That's half a century. Uh, uh, half a, almost half a millennium. Long time. And I'm saying to you right now, unless you are one, born again, you cannot understand the New or Old Testament. Do you hear what I said? If you're not born again, you cannot rightly understand the New Testament or the Old Testament. And even if you're born again and and understand the New Testament, you must understand it in order to understand the Old. You cannot understand the Old Testament without a spiritual guide of the New Testament. It is accessible only for those who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. If you were with me on Quora when I debate with my atheist friends, it is so absolutely obvious that they don't have no understanding either of the New or the Old Testament. They're just in it to insult God. What do I do? I take, I take the opportunity to teach them about Christ. Does that mean anything to them? Who knows? We were just talking, there's an uh, entry on Facebook about street preaching. Is it effective? Who, who cares? Is it obedient to the commands of God? You bet. Is God able to use street preaching? You bet. Have people come to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ through street preaching? You bet. The same thing applies to my Quora ministries. 
It's a written ministry. I never meet these people face to face. Thank goodness. Some of them would kill me, I think. (laughs) But uh, are people saved by uh, uh, entries in Quora? You betcha. I don't know who they are or what. I'm not the only one that testifies there. There are probably hundreds of us. Is God working through that? You betcha. He's working through street preaching. He is working through every opportunity that we get, talking with our neighbors, of spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because that's what this whole thing is all about. Even the book of Leviticus. With that, we'll close for now. I won't guarantee you how much time I'll spend next week on some other matters, but nonetheless, we're going to try to break into chapter one somewhere during the next lesson. And it's a talking about burnt sacrifices, burnt offerings. So read uh, Leviticus chapter one and point out, uh, make a mark, hit your mark. Some of you don't mark your Bibles, do you? Um, I mark mine all the time. I've got a whole bunch of old ones that, that are all marked up. Um, but Mark, where it says, and the Lord said to Moses, and the Lord said, and the Lord said, and the Lord said, and the Lord said. In the book of Leviticus, I finish with this point, there are more references to God speaking than any other book of the Bible, Old or New Testament. God speaks directly to Moses and he gives him instructions. And then because of disobedience, he dies in the mountain before he enters the Holy Land. (laughs) I just love that story because it, it warns us what our obligations are. May God help us to preach the gospel, even from the book of Leviticus, which we fully intend to do. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, only you can help us. You have revealed yourself in Christ Jesus our Lord, and he has told us all the things that the prophets and Moses and the others spoke of you. And so, Father, help us to see them again and that our hearts might be warmed and see the connection between everything that you have done from Genesis 1-1 all the way to this very day. Thank you, Father, for your good grace and mercy to us sinners. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.